If this is your first time to Coming Back to Love, the podcast, welcome. We're so glad you found us. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Either way, you're not here by accident. I'm your host, Karen Walker-Cohn, a wife, a mom, entrepreneur, friend, and dreamer who is ready to step into more of who I am created to be. I am committed to personal transformation for global impact. Now, this podcast may be very different from others. Our guests don't come with a topic or agenda. They come open and ready to receive and deliver the message that's meant for you. You will also notice our podcast is not overly produced. This is on purpose. Our hope is we will inspire you to step into who you're created to be, regardless of how it may look. Take inspired action on that book, business, relationship, and yes, podcast, or whatever it is on your heart. In my experience, my mess usually ends up being my message. I encourage you to approach our time today with a beginner's mindset and with openness to receive what is meant for you. I am beyond honored to welcome acclaimed, inspirational keynote speaker, workshop leader, author, and consultant, Mr. Azim Kamisa. Mr. Kamisa was the keynote speaker at my Heart of the Samurai training in San Diego. Now, this training is focused on instilling effective belief systems that empower you to build a life characterized by joy, fulfillment, and success. Azim shared his incredible story of forgiveness and reconciliation. My husband, Chris, and I were instantly captivated by his calming and joyful light and decided to go up and talk to him. Now, I was still stuck in my not enough patterns, and I would have let this opportunity pass me by, but not husband. He is my hype man, 100%. He started telling Azim about the podcast that I wanted to create, and Azim wanted to hear more. And I mustered up the courage to ask him to be a guest in this episode. And this episode is the result of being afraid and asking anyway. Sometimes we get to borrow what we need from others until we have enough for ourselves to give away. Thank you, husband. I love you. Mr. Kamisa is the founder and chair of the Tariq Kamisa Foundation, dedicated to the elimination of youth violence since 1995. He co-founded the Constant and Never-Ending Improvement Program, which restores offending youth as functioning and contributing members of society. The organization is national and is in its 20th year. Also, if you have not seen Azim's TED Talk, I will drop the link into the show notes. It is worth a watch. And over 1 million other views says I'm not the only one who thinks so. He conducts workshops and trains corporations on how to transform conflict into unity using the tenets of restorative justice. Azim has met with President Clinton, Secretary of Education Richard Riley, and Vice President Al Gore to develop policy to curb the increasing rise in youth violence. 
Also check out his books, each addressing critical aspects of redemption, forgiveness, personal growth, and leadership. These books encapsulate the lifelong mission he has to inspire societal transformation. You will find all the links in the show notes. And I remind you to click on that subscribe button and that little bell if you're watching this on our YouTube channel and click follow on any of your favorite podcast streaming services. Your support means the world to us. Now, without further ado, here is the wonderful Azim Kamisa with episode eight, Murder to Mercy, Transformation Through Forgiveness. When you hear the title of this podcast, Coming Back to Love, Inspiring Stories on Shifting Perspectives, what story or experience from your life comes to mind? Good question, Karen. Um, There are many stories, but I always uh, have a saying that if I'm not sure what I must do or how I must react or how I might respond is probably a better word. I always ask, what would love do in this case? And I think that love always makes the right decision because I think love lives in your spirit, not so much in your intellect or in your heart. I believe if you believe in God or if you believe in a divine spirit, or if you believe in a higher power, I think it is the platform of all of those words is actually love. So what story comes to mind uh, was a story that uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, shared with our group, which was a very small group. We were hosted by Pope John Paul uh, in 2004. He passed away in 2005 in a five-day conference in Castel Gandolfo, which is about 45 minutes from Venice, where the Pope has his summer palace. And it was only 30 of us that were invited to participate in this five-day conference. And we were taken care of as royalty the same way the Pope was taken care of because we stayed in a, um, in, a, uh, in a guest home close, attached to his palace. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama spent the last two days with us. So that was something I will never forget. He spent 15 hours with the 30 of us and uh, I have been very fortunate to have met him now a half a dozen times, but that was the first time. And uh, one of the stories he shared, uh, as most of you know, that the Dalai Lama was ousted by the Chinese, I believe in 57 or 58 in that area. And uh, Tibet now is under China, Uh, which is unfortunate in a way because Tibet was the only country that I know where both the secular and the spiritual head were the same. So the Dalai Lama was a secular head of Tibet as well as a spiritual head of Tibet. And it had probably one of the most compassionate 
form of government that the world has ever seen. Something we could use today, but that model doesn't exist. There were 6 million Tibetans. The Chinese in their takeover of Tibet killed 1.6 million and destroyed 640,000 monasteries. In the Tibetan culture, young people were always sent to a two-year monk school. That's why they had so many monasteries. Similar to at one point, we sent our young people for two years to, to train in a military. And uh, many of the high monks were captured. The Dalai Lama was able to escape and now lives in, uh, in, um, in, in India uh, in uh, the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, but one of the high priests, uh, or monk, I should say, uh, that was captured was His Holiness's best friend, who actually went to a monk school with him. And uh, the prison, his best friend for 30 years. And the Dalai Lama, with his international reputation, finally, after 30 years, was able to release him. And he's sharing this story with the 30 of us. And he said, you know, I was so excited to see my, my friend. He traveled through China and India and came to pay his homage in Dharamsala, which is the foothills of the Himalayas where His Holiness resides. And we hugged and we sat down and I offered him the best tea and we had cookies. And, and uh, he said to me, while he was in Chinese prison, he had this impending danger in his life. So I asked my friend, were you afraid that the Chinese were going to kill you? He said, no, I was not afraid of dying. I don't have to tell you about Chinese torture. They tortured him. He said, the impending danger in my life was losing compassion for the Chinese. And I was sitting in the front row and I broke down and cried like a baby. I should say I sobbed because here the monk is talking about yeah. being in prison for 30 years, being tortured. The Chinese murdered 1.6 million of his sisters and brothers, destroyed 640,000 monasteries and the impending danger in his life was losing compassion for the Chinese. Wow. And as you know, my story that wow. uh, I forgave my son's killer, started a foundation, invited his grandfather and guardian to join me. And the young man who killed my son was gang involved. My son was a university student, uh, talented writer, gifted photographer. Um, great sense of humor and inspired someday to be a journalist and wanted to work for National Geographic and worked as a pizza delivery man while he was in university and he was lured by a youth gang. And in a gang initiation, a 14-year-old shot and killed him. This was 29 years ago. In fact, the anniversary is coming up. 
uh, wow. in January. And uh, needless to say, it brought my life to a crashing halt. But what I saw in this tragedy, because sometimes in deep tragedy, there is a spark of clarity. Every saint has suffered the dark night of the soul. And what I saw in this tragedy is that they were victims at both ends of the gun. Somehow I found compassion for the kid who killed my son. He was 14. I saw that he wasn't the enemy. The enemy was a societal peer pressure that forced many young men and women to fall to the crack and get involved with gangs and drugs and alcohol and weapons. As you know, it happens a lot in our country. We lose a young soul every hour. I couldn't believe the statistics. In the richest nation in the world, and this is very much an American phenomenon. This doesn't happen in other first world countries. Right. And I was shocked that I didn't, be, I didn't feel our, we were doing enough to save lives of our young ones whether they die like my son or whether they end up in prison for a really long time, like Tony, who killed my son. Anyway, nine months later, uh, learning all these horrific uh, statistics, I decided to start a foundation named after my son. It's called the Tariq Kamisa Foundation. Mm -hmm. I forgave my son's killer and reached out to his grandfather and guardian in forgiveness with the attitude that I'm not here screaming retribution or revenge because your grandson took the life of my son. Rather, I'm mm -hmm. here in the spirit of love and compassion because what I really see here is we both lost a son. Because Tony lived with his grandfather and calls him daddy. Right. And I started this foundation with the mission of stopping kids from killing kids. And I can't bring Tariq back from the dead. He's gone. He's gone forever. There's nothing you can do to get Tony out of prison. But the one thing you and I can do is to make sure other young people in our community don't end up dead like Tariq or end up in prison for a long time like Tony. The real reason I'm here is to ask for your help. Will you help me? Mm. So he was very quick to take my hand of forgiveness. And the first thing that came out of his mouth is a uh, Baptist from the South. He said, thank you for reaching out to me. Ever since I found out that my son when my grandson was responsible for the life of your son, I went into the prayer closet, praying someday I can meet you so I can extend my condolences to you and your family. And of course, I'll help you. That was 29 years ago. We're still together. I would never have met this man had his grandson not killed my son. Yeah, He's one of the most intelligent human yeah. beings I know. Mm -hmm. Had a good home for his grandson. Mm -hmm. Two tours of Vietnam as a Green Beret. Was an enterprise manager for the city of San Diego. And had a good home for Tony. And did not know that Tony was gang involved. 
He's as close to me as my own brother. And uh, the foundation has reached 2 million kids in these 29 years. And we are saving lives of the kids that we have reached. I can tell you story after story after story. And then five years later, which was in 2000, I went and met the young man who killed my son. He was 19 years old. It took me five years to, to, to have enough courage to go see him. Because very hard to come eyeball to eyeball with yeah. the person who I pulled bet. the trigger on your child. I mean, it took thousands of hours of meditation. I used to meditate an hour. Tariq was alive today, my practice is two hours. But that was also a very defining moment because I told the grandfather, I'd like you to go with me because this is the first time I'm meeting Tony. But I need one-on-one -on -one time with him because if you, as his grandfather, if you will be there for the entire meeting, then he's going to be defensive. And I have some tough questions for him. So the grandfather was very gracious. We spent the first 30 minutes talking about Tony's life in prison, which is very dark and hard and segregated and violent. And then I and he spent an hour and a half together man to man. But the defining moment in that conversation was we both locked eyeballs. I'm looking in his eyeballs and he's holding my glance for what seemed like a long time, almost uncomfortable. And I'm looking in his mm -hmm. eyes to try and find a murderer. And I didn't. I was able to climb through his eyes and touch his humanity that I got that the spark in him was no different than the spark in me or you or anybody else who is listening to this podcast. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. He was kind. He was remorseful. He was well-mannered. He was articulate. And he did not portray any of the attitudes of a typical 19-year-old in American culture. I wasn't expecting that. I could tell that my hand of forgiveness yeah. had shifted him. He wasn't the 14-year-old gangbanger. That this five years that he'd done a lot of introspective work. He was a likable kid. So at that point, I told him, uh, Tony, you know I've forgiven you. I've been working with your grandfather for over four years now. I want you to know when you come out of prison, you can come and work with your grandfather and me. We'll have a job for you at the foundation. And uh, wow. after about two hours, uh, I left the prison and I still remember, it was a very freeing moment that my stride was a lot more bouncier leaving the <laughs> prison than it was coming in because I knew I had right. completed my journey of forgiveness. 
and it was freeing. And the preeminent thought in my mind was, why did I wait five years? Oh, oh really? And the next day, yeah. the grandfather called me and said, Azim, that meeting you had with Tony has totally shifted him 180 degrees. And I said, you know what? It's the same for me. He said, while you were leaving the prison, Tony looks at me and says, Daddy, that's a that's an honorable man. Not only did he forgive me for killing his only son, he's offered me a job. I'm not worthy of it, but I'm going to try. And the grandfather said, he never said that to me before. He always used to say to me, Daddy, I'm not going to make it in prison. I'm going to die in prison because he's a young, good-looking, charismatic man in an adult prison. Well, I stayed with him for 20 more years and, paid, and played a fatherly role in his life because his father was not in his life. He was born to a 15-year-old, which was the grandfather's daughter. So it was a child bringing up a child, and he really was brought up by, by his great-grandmother. And then when he was eight years old, he was sent to live with his grandfather. And when he took Tariq's life, he was in eighth grade, 14 years old. And uh, finally in 2019, because I was advocating for his release, Tony was invited on to go to parole, and I was there advocating for his release. And even the, um, the commissioner was in tears. He said, you know, I've been doing this work for 25 years. I've never had the victim's father and my daughter, who also met Tony much later, advocating for the offender's release. My daughter is executive director of her brother's foundation. And there's a sibling relationship with Tony. He said, I've never had, you know, the father and the sister of the victim advocate for the offender's release. It's in tears. And I said, you know, he has work to do. And that work he has to do is not behind bars. It's with the foundation. I said, think about how many kids he will say when he's on stage with me. And he tells the kids, when I was 11, I joined a gang when I was 14. I killed Mr. Kamisa's son. I've spent the last umpteen years in prison. I wish I could turn the clock back. How many kids is he going? They were thinking about joining a gang, changed their mind. And he's very passionate. So he's volunteering for the foundation since 2019, as his grandfather and I have done for the last 29 years. So, you know, I could have gone the other way and say he took my own one and only son. He should be hung from the highest pole. Well, how does that improve society? Wow. So I'm glad I was able to transcend a negative and had the eyes to choose forgiveness, to choose love, essentially. I have over 150,000 letters from kids that personally spoken to over a million kids worldwide 
And this was written by a seventh grade, which said, the ultimate expression of love is forgiveness. So seventh grader. So the message is, is resonating, you know, with the kids that we work with. I said, not only are these concepts of empathy and accountability and compassion and forgiveness and love teachable, our kids are hungry yeah. for them. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. That, if that's not a coming back to love story, <laughs> I don't know what is. Oh, I appreciate you sharing that for our listeners today. Um, and that, that is like, you know, like you mentioned it, you, you could have went the other way and because you chose to come back to love, you have impacted the world. You've impacted lives. And now I'm so excited that, um, you, the listener are hearing this story today. You have the opportunity to be impacted. Um, I hope that you will take this opportunity and, um, cause you're not here. You're not here by mistake. You're not listening to this podcast by mistake. You're not watching it by mistake. Um, if you heard something here today that will move you into a future with forgiveness and just coming your future coming back to love. I, uh, and, and, you know, reach out to me. I would love to help you on that journey. Please check out, um, Azim and, uh, the Tariq foundation as well. Uh, Tariq Kamisa foundation. We will be dropping all the links, everything in the show notes that you need to, um, reach out to either one of us. Uh, if you know, uh, children in compromising um you know areas that could use support um i know azima i believe that that's what the foundation is there to do <laughs> so yeah we have a safe school model which we've developed over the last uh, 20 plus years it's been tested by most every university. We have a lot of good uh, colleges and universities in San Diego. And uh, it starts uh, the first program. After the sixth program, the first the four programs are for, for students. So the first mm -hmm. is a live assembly mm -hmm. with me and the grandfather or me and Tony now because he's joined us. And we've introduced this man's grandson, killed this man's son. And uh, here together in the spirit of compassion and brotherhood and forgiveness. And I, as I said, we are different. Place is African-American, although I always tease him because I was born in Kenya. I always tell him, I'm the African-American, not you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's a uh, Christian. I am Muslim. Oh, I love that. Is Christian, yes. and I'm proud of yes. my 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 growing up in Africa. I have a very loving sport for Africa. A lot of still a lot of good friends. There's a lot of soul in Africa which you don't see in the Western world. Absolutely, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and yes. it's palpable. Yeah. You know, if you've ever been to Kenya, you 
you can feel the people's soul. I, I just love it. And uh, and he's Christian and Muslim, and and his kid killed my my kid, and we are brothers. And and and, and the portal of that was forgiveness. And uh, yeah. so uh, after the assembly, we do a debrief because. When I I always ask you know kids because a lot of our work is in inner city schools. I always ask how many of you have lost family members as a result of violence. The first time I asked, like two thirds of the hands go up, and that continues today. And these are these are middle schoolers. We specialize from fourth grade to tenth grade. And the first time I asked this, I cried all the way home. I thought, you know, these kids are, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, and they're dealing with such grief because their family members that have been killed or are in prison. Mm -hmm. It's a big number. Mm -hmm. And then we follow with Absolutely. a 10-week curriculum, which essentially is a socio-emotional resiliency course where we teach accountability and empathy and compassion and forgiveness and uh, uh, peace building and peacemaking. You're not going to get up and find the world is at peace. You have to work at it proactively. And we have three levels of it, of this 10-week curriculum. First is fourth, fifth, and sixth. Seventh, eighth is the second level. Ninth, tenth is the third level. And it's amazing how effective this curriculum is. I can tell you many stories there. And then we create a peace club on campus, which essentially is a leadership program. We have about 60 titles. We use project-based learning. So the kids actually go out in the community and learn what it is to be a nonviolent peacemaker and, uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 and take on a leadership role. And then we have a mentoring program for the ones that are on that slippery slope like Tony was. The first three program goes right. to the entire school and the mentoring goes to the ones that are potentially going to get involved with gangs. And they're not difficult to pick out. You can go into any classroom and the teacher will tell you. Uh, and you know, the programs are developing, besides teaching all of this important socio-emotional resiliency, we're cutting expulsions and suspensions by 70%. Because if you expel a kid wow. or suspend, he's not in school anymore. So where is he? He's in a gang. Right. Because we talk about the school mm -hmm. to prison pipeline. And uh, we were invited by UC Berkeley to create a program for parents based on the work we're doing with the kids. It's under the umbrella of restorative practices. So we now have a, a very effective program for parents because a lot of parents are traumatized as well. And then during COVID, we created a program for teachers. So we have six programs under the umbrella of Safe School Model. And we have a second site in Buck County in Philadelphia. And uh, uh, near Philadelphia, uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, I should say. Uh, 
which started, uh, I believe, five years ago. We're now in six different school districts. Okay. There. So, okay. so we become a training institute once we go out to San Diego. Here, we provide direct services. So our mentors actually are on school campuses, but okay. they work for us. When we go outside San Diego County, we train the school system, the unified school districts, to essentially bring our safe school model to them. So my hope uh, is someday we'll be in every school that needs us, not only in the United States, but in the world. Oh, that's wonderful. And that was basically my next question. <laughs> when are you guys coming to Texas? When are you coming to uh, the rest of the rest of the states? Um, how and how can we support what you're doing? Well, you know, the, the, the challenge with most nonprofit organization is we never have enough money to provide all the demand. So it breaks my heart that uh, I have so many schools waiting for uh, program, but we don't have the staff to handle it. And uh, there's always this balance uh, that you have so much money. We, are, we have a staff of 22 people, but, you know, we need many, 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 many more to you know, reach out to uh, other parts uh, of the country as well as, as well as expand within California. So, you know, the, the, the way that you can help, A, is to essentially share our website, Tari Kamisa Foundation, share our story, and uh, uh, hopefully when more people know about uh, the work we're doing, and if they are able to, they can also donate. We, we've been very touched. We've got donations um, from places where we're not active, but something happens, you know, a young person gets killed and, mm -hmm. um, and then they find that what, what we're doing and they'll send us a, a, a donation. We want some grants from both national and international organizations. So, you know, my goal uh, is to now be, is, 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 a, is to try and create enough capital to be able to hire middle management. We have a top team. My daughter is the executive director of the foundation. We have a lady by the name of Benita, who is our programs director. And then we have a lot of mentors and social workers and supervisors. But what we're lacking is middle management. So I need three basic uh, positions. I need somebody that uh, is essentially at a director level, above a supervisor level for programs and the managing of the mentors. I need uh, somebody who can help with development or advancement, which essentially is about donor relationships and creating more donors uh, to help us raise more money, both through donations as well as grants. And then the third thing is I need a strong administrator. Uh, I mean, I have the top level, but we do need a stop administrator so, the, so that the top management team uh, is, have time to expand and, and not be able to continuously be drawn into running the organization. I'm not there yet, but I'm working at it. Uh, I hope uh, that uh, 
we are looking at some uh, major you know do donations as well as uh, some grants that can get us there and also trying to work uh, with the uh, with the government because uh, you know the the yeah. cost of incarceration uh, youth for one year is $148,000 that's one year right one youth it's over $400 a day and even after spending that much money the recidivism rate is 84%. So 84% mm. come right back. So it's super expensive. Uh, public education yeah. in, in California is about $11,500 and change. Because we provide free uh, K through 12 education in the United States. The safe school model is $50 a kid a year. Wow. So it's not that much more, and we can save some money, right? Because we are saving them not ending up in prison and costing the taxpayer millions at one hundred and forty-eight thousand a year, and most right. of the sentences are twenty-five years, and then eighty-four percent come back. So we have a strong case, but as you know, trying to get money from the government is like. Uh, changing an act of Congress. It's not easy to do. But uh, we, we were approached by the governor's office in California. They approached us, so we feel more confident because uh, the two people they hired uh, to run uh, our district, which includes San Diego County plus Riverside and Orange County, the two people that run the governor's office in this region went to my assembly <laughs> well, we've been wow. there for 29 years and they can still remember it. So when they were in wow. seventh grade, because now they are working for the governor, they actually experienced assembly. And, they, and it's one of those things you never forget because the image is so powerful when you introduce yes. this man's grandson killed this man's son and that together and that different. Yeah. So we transcend all of those yeah. isms, whether it's race yeah. or religion or socioeconomic status or whatever. So, um, mm -hmm. and I think it's so needed right now because the U.S. is more divided yes. than I've ever seen it. I moved here 50 years ago when I left Kenya because of the violence of Idi Amin in neighboring Uganda. We were a minority. So essentially we were targeted. Uh, Kenya, of course, was never like Uganda, but we were neighbors. And some of my mom's family right. and my in-laws uh, were affected because they lived in Uganda and, and they were all right. made refugees overnight. So in Kenya, we left voluntarily because we felt that whole region was very unstable. So I left in 74, so it's 50 years ago. And but I've never seen it so divided in the United States. I mean, it's, you know, the election is coming up and, and you know, it potentially could end up in violence. Uh, you know, it's, I know friends of mine uh, are very concerned. Some even think we may have a civil war. I hope not. But, oh, my uh, goodness. Uh, you know, if it, it, the, the, the division is if you're not with me, you are against me. But that's not democracy. 
Right. Democracy is looking at opposing yeah. views and debating them so the best possible answer can emerge. That's democracy. Right. It's not that way anymore. I mean, if you don't, if you're not with me, you're against me. Well, that's not, you know, we need to go back to the vision of our founders. Because, you know, if you look at American history, which is about 250 years old, uh, every success, every successive generation left a better America than the one they inherited. Well, that's not the case. The last few generations, yeah. two or three generations, mm -hmm. and I'm part of the yuppie generation. They're called the me, 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 me generation, you know? So mm -hmm. we need to reverse. Uh, we need to reverse this division. And, uh, and I think forgiveness can get us there. I'm uh, launching another effort. Absolutely. Uh, about trying to create global peace through forgiveness. Because, you know, the tipping point is not very high. Uh, I started working two and a half years ago is about peace through forgiveness with the idea that if I can get enough people to learn forgiveness, we can have world peace. And I was thinking there's 8 billion people. If you get a billion people, then the default outcome would be world peace. Well, I thought a billion is possible today. If you look at right. Facebook and LinkedIn and some of this, there are two or three billion people. Well, I was told by a very high, by, a, by an expert in AI, he's probably one of the top 10 in the world. He said, Azim, you don't need to get to a billion. The science is 4%. I said, are you sure? Yeah. He says, all movements, the tipping point is 4%. He says, if you look at MLK's movement, if you look at Gandhi's movement, or more recently, the Black Lives Matter movement, you only have to get to 4% and then organically, because what, 4% of 8 billion is 320 million people. 4% of America is 12 million people. Mm -hmm. So very achievable. So this year, um, uh, right. on March 6th, which will be the 50th birthday, if my son had left, he died at 20. Uh, so 30 years later, he would have been 50. I'm launching this uh, uh, movement called Peace Through Forgiveness uh, and um, right. with the goal to get to 320 million people. And uh, uh, I've been working with, uh, with six volunteers and six university teams uh, for the last two and a half years on how we get there. So we're now ready. <laughs> so. Stay tuned and thanks for putting my website on there. And we also will have a new website uh, called peacethroughforgiveness.com. And I want to make sure you put that one on. It's not, it's not live yet, but it will be live by March, March the 6th. Yeah. Right. So, I you know, I mean, sure to do this that. is another way people can help. Uh, I think we all want world peace. We want peace in America too. And I think that, uh, 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 yeah. You can't just sit back and do nothing. That doesn't feel right. You can't just say our country is the most divided it has ever been and there's nothing I can do. No, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't yeah. feel like what a good citizen would do. So my uh, right. effort now is to right. promote peace through forgiveness. And I think we can all learn because I'm gonna, I have two, I've been teaching forgiveness for the last 20 plus years. I, I do a two-day workshop, which I've now 
put in an online course where I teach how you forgive people that have harmed you and how you forgive yourselves. You can't get to peace by just forgiving yeah. people that have harmed you. You got to look at your stuff. But it's very freeing. Yeah. I mean, everything. That, I mean, true. I'm, That's where I was going to go. Yeah. I mean, I look back at my life. Uh, I decided to forgive Tony, and and what has manifested in my life is beyond my wildest dreams. I've written five books, and I met uh, people like His Holiness and Desmond Tutu and won awards with them, and uh, I've lectured all over the world. Uh, uh, I never knew when I forgave Tony all of the stuff that's manifested in my life. Uh, So it was the right choice for me. And I'm at peace. And, you know, my first book was From Murder to Forgiveness. Which were and the sequel was from forgiveness to fulfillment because I've reached, I, I've reached over a million kids, and it's been really fulfilling to save lives of kids, and a hundred over a hundred thousand letters, and then the trilogy is from fulfillment to peace, and Tony wrote the forward mm-hmm. to my last book. In fact, he and I are he and I are speaking in L.A. next Sunday. <laughs> we. Oh. Oh, and we great. speak together all the time, yeah. So, so I think people once they understand the gift of forgiveness, uh, it will help them. It will create better bonds within yeah. their families. It will create better bonds between them, them and their spouses and their children and their peers and their community. Yes. I mean, forgiveness yeah. now. I mean, when I wrote my first book, there wasn't much on forgiveness. You had to go to the scriptures. But today there are 500 clinical studies or more. There's a forgiveness project at Stanford in Hawaii where I've spoken in England. That forgiveness is something that is a gift and it's clinically proven the health effects of forgiveness. There's a great quote by Mandela. Absolutely. Mandela didn't write this quote, but he made it famous. He said, resentment, hatred, and anger and unforgiveness it's like drinking poison and waiting for your enemy to die. Because if you stay in anger, resentment, and hatred, who are you hurting? Yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, all of that absolutely. anger and resentment manifest into cancer. So I think right. that, that uh, besides getting to peace, forgiveness is a very healthy um, tool to espouse in your lives. And I know it's done wonders for me and my family. And, uh, and I hope yes. as your listeners are learning that uh, they will take this to heart. And I think if we get enough forgiving people, we can come back together and be united. You know? Yes. That's my hope. And, and like, like you said, it starts with forgiving ourselves and, yeah. and then, that drop and rippling out into everyone else. And really that's what coming back to love is all about. And um, I, I'm so thankful that you take, taken time out of your busy schedule to come and speak with me. And uh, it's so lovely to see you again. Uh, My experience of you, Azim is just peaceful, visionary, um, Liberty. And so much joy. 
and it's so great to have you on the program and I just appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome, Karen. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Coming Back to Love, the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please make sure to click the link in the description to take you to the full video episode on our YouTube channel. If you absolutely love what we're about, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave us a review. For more inspiration and resources, visit my website at theklwprojectgroup.com where you'll find all the ways you can connect with me. I would love to hear your suggestions for topics, questions, and future guests you'd like to hear from to support your coming back to love journey. In the meantime, have an inspiring rest of your day.